This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the alarming spike in anti-Semitism here at home and around the world in the wake of the latest fighting between Israel and Hamas. Uh, and uh, the different nature of these incidents, which are increasingly violent, threatening, bold, brazen attacks. And so uh, let's go back to our guests and Michael Levitt. So what has to be done that is not being done? Well, I, I just want to comment on, on Rosie's um, uh, point or, or question, and I think it's a really good one. Um, they, we see political communications these days going out on, on Twitter, and I really do think at times like this, um, it's important that, again, there is more of a um, full-throated um, communication from leadership across the country. And I absolutely want to acknowledge um, the, 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 the tweets and the, you know, the statements that have come from, as it's been mentioned already, the prime minister, the premier, uh, the, the mayor John Tory and, and, and others. But we want to see everybody. We need to see, um, you know, a, members of parliament, MPPs, city councillors, everybody speaking out about this because it's happening in their communities. It's happening across the country. And I think it is absolutely important um, that, uh, that that they do, because when they speak out, when they go and they take a stand on these things, it allows the media to cover these events. One of the problems that we're seeing is there has been an absolute lack of coverage. And Lily, I'm really thankful you're doing this topic today, but it's something that has just not been noticed. The, the, the rise in these things. I mean, I saw an article, uh, a, a story on, on uh, one of the um, kind of the news channels, um, which, uh, which talked about a peaceful demonstration in Mississauga the previous weekend. But that peaceful demonstration had signs invoking Hitler. It had flags being burned. It had sloganeering that was absolutely meant to incite and, uh, and uh, uh, create an atmosphere of hatred towards uh, Jews, we, we, there needs to be an understanding and clearer messaging from the media on the nature of what's happening out there. Uh, and I think we all bear a responsibility for that, and we've all got to find better ways of making sure that that happens. Uh, Michael Mostyn? Yeah, well, listen, I'm, I'm going to agree with everything Michael just said once again, and uh, that's not surprising, uh, because we agree on a lot of things, and our community has one voice when we're speaking out against this rise disturbing rise in anti-Semitism that we've been seeing over the last few weeks. But um, a couple of points to jump on before, and something Michael touched on earlier, you know, when there, when there was that rise in anti-Asian hate, and as you said, Libby, quite rightly, um, you know, this was a, again, a, a perversion of COVID-19 conspiracy theories that have attacked the Asian community. The Jewish community was there, we spoke out against it, and in similar ways, we're seeing that same um, transformation into um, COVID-19 conspiracy theories against Jews. We, we spoke up um, against the injustices against George Floyd, but we're waiting right now to hear from other communities, from leadership of other communities, to stand with Jewish community, which is being attacked even in their homes, on the streets, in cities across Canada. And it was mentioned by the caller earlier, what more can we do? Our, pol our political leaders, and first of all, when they're making their statements, they should be talking about anti-Semitism alone. It doesn't always, anti-Semitism doesn't always have to be taught tagged in with another form of racism. When the Jewish community is being targeted loud and clear from our political leaders, they need to stand up and call out the hate that is focused on the Jewish community alone, because that is what we are seeing here, and we are quite frankly not seeing that for many politicians out there. It was a great statement from the Prime Minister, Aaron O'Toole has put out a great statement. We need to see leader like ship like that from all of our elected officials, um, because it's not just the signs. We've we hear chants um, in support of terrorism, the murder of Jews, from crowds in cities across Canada right now. That's very disturbing, and we need direction. We need direction from our municipal elected leaders across Canada 
to direct police that when incitement is being raised against Jews, um, there have to be criminal consequences. Because if there are no criminal consequences for this, oftentimes in violation of COVID-19 restrictions, when so many of us are doing the right thing and staying home and making these very, very difficult sacrifices, this will lead to further and further escalation in society. It's something that we don't want to see in a great democracy like Canada. That's what we need to do. Is, is there an issue... Simon, that uh, one of the things that I've seen uh, pointed out is that uh, some of the silence on this comes from uh, from people who identify as progressive and who would be calling out other forms of hatred, who would be calling out um, anti-Black racism or anti-Asian racism and just uh, sitting on their hands because somehow... This is supposedly directed against Israel. Well, I think that uh, I want to first say I, I really value and appreciate uh, my colleagues' points here on this panel. I think that they brought up some, some excellent uh, notes. And, and to come back just to uh, Rosie's call-in, um, you know, Twitter flashes on a cell phone or a computer screen, and then, and then it's gone. Um, but the reality of anti-Semitism, um, as some of my colleagues have, have mentioned, is that it's, it's present, uh, it's in people's lives, it's in their neighborhood, um, and it's going on, uh, unfortunately, continuously. And we're seeing a disturbing and concerning uh, rise um, in not just the amount of anti-Semitic acts, but also uh, the type of acts, uh, violence uh, going to neighborhoods online in person. And, and really, it's a problem uh, that concerns uh, not just Jews, but all Canadians. Um, it, it's so important for uh, leaders to offer a full uh, condemnation of anti-Semitism and what's happening. And, and this isn't just leaders of, of municipal, federal, uh, provincial uh, governments. These are also community organizations. Um, I encourage everyone who can to offer a full uh, condemnation of the rise in anti-Semitism that we're seeing and, and that our communities and that families in our communities are experiencing right now. So, yeah, Libby, I, if I could just jump in for one second, it's Michael Mostyn here. I just need to say that you, you raise an excellent point. The anti-Israel extremism, the anti-Semitism we are seeing from anti-Israel extremists right now is a predominant form of anti-Semitism that we're mm-hmm. facing. There are so many quite rightly focused on the extremism from the right, on the anti-Semitism from the right, but it needs to be addressed, and you're absolutely right that those from the political left aren't dealing with that well at all right now, and it needs to be addressed because hate is hate. Uh, yeah, I'm, I want to take one more very quick call from a, a listener, but I also want to make the point in terms of putting the condemnations out on social media. I personally don't have a problem with that because a lot of the problems and the misinformation are there on, on social media. But let's hear from Helen in Toronto. Hello, Helen. Hi, Libby. I'm so happy to hear that you're addressing this topic. I received two emails, which I just forwarded on to Zeev. Um, and one is dry bones. We don't attack the Jews uh, because we're anti-Semitism. We attack and beat Jews on the street because we're pro-Palestinian, after which it asks you to send donations so that they can continue this. The second one, which uh, I also sent, was join us in in the phones app. They're going to try to tie up lines uh, between t- on Tuesday, May 25th, between 6 and 7 o'clock, so that uh, the Palestinians are the only ones making their voice heard. It is frightening. We lost $6 million. We don't want a Jewish jo- uh, George Floyd. And that's what I see happening, that there's going to be some explosion. On the other side, I was in that parade that went up and down Bathurst Street, and I had tears in my eyes because it was peaceful. When I was going, I joined them at Steele's, went through Earl Bales Park, and then turned around to go home. Helen, Helen, I've got to let you go because I'm out of time, and I want to give our panelists like 10 seconds each, okay? Okay. Thank Thank you you for your call. Okay, uh, that's it. We're basically out of time. So 
20 seconds each, starting with Michael Levitt. Well, thank you for, again, um, raising awareness of this issue, Libby. Uh, it's, it's so appreciated. And I would say this to your listeners, uh, those that, uh, that may not have been familiar with this issue. If you know members of the Jewish community, if you have a social media account, if you can make a couple of phone calls, reach out to people you know or reach out on Facebook today and just lend your support uh, uh, to the community and against anti-Semitism. It'll be appreciated. I can assure you of that. Michael Marston. I'd like to agree with Michael. Thank you, Libby, for covering this very important topic. I wish more media would be doing the same. Michael's absolutely right. Um, and, and the other message that I would give to your listeners who are aware of this situation that's going on is to stay strong and stay hopeful because, um, you know, groups like ours will be pushing back against the anti-Semitism and we will be calling for consequences against uh, perpetrators who are violating the rules of law in this country. It simply cannot be allowed to stand and it has to be called out loud and clear by all of our elected officials. Simon, 20 seconds, no more. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on the show, Libby, and and covering this very important topic. Uh, Talking to folks uh, at home just to make sure that they speak up. Uh, write your elected officials. Uh, talk to your friends and family. Uh, urge folks to uh, to forcefully condemn uh, anti-Semitism. Okay, and it is exactly one o'clock. Thank you all, Michael Levitt, Michael Mostyn, and Simon Granite, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There's been a huge increase in anti-Semitic attacks here and around the world since the latest round of fighting between Israel and Hamas. Communal leaders have unfortunately grown accustomed to vandalism in the wake of Mideast tensions, but this time uh, it is a lot different because many more of these incidents are violent, bold, and brazen daytime attacks. Take a listen to this YouTube post from Edmonton. A uh, car ripped by, was going quite quickly, um, and, you know, windows were rolled down and a few young men yelled out, free Palestine, and, you know, obviously we're not morons, we know what's going on in the world, and we are kind of just like, okay, whatever, no harm done. And then um, they kind of got to the end of, the street my parents lived on pulled a Yui and they and they they stopped in front of our house and said, "Oh, do you know if any Jews live here?" Well, uh, that's not the only place that has happened where you have uh, a mob or or a number of people looking for Jews to attack. That is very scary. South of the border, we have seen people beaten up by mobs. We have heard people shouting threats of rape. Politicians at every level have condemned these hate crimes, but that does not seem to be a deterrent. Uh, I'd like to hear from you on your reaction to this. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Michael Levitt, President and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, Michael Mostyn, the CEO of B'nai B'rith Canada, and Simon Granite from the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Thank you all so much for joining me. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Okay, let us start with Michael Mostyn. You've been tracking anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic incidents for a long time. What is different this time? Yeah, thanks, Libby, first of all, for covering this topic. Um, so, yes, we have been following it. I mean, we've been ourselves have been putting together an audit of anti-Semitic incidents since 1982, simply to show the trend lines, how anti-Semitism is faring within Canadian society. Um, we've been seeing an uptick in the last number of years. Last year, over 2,000 incidents in Canada were documented for the third year in a row, showing an elevated level but what I can say right now, and I'm, I know my colleagues will agree because the entire Jewish community is concerned about this, and all three of our organizations have been working very closely to combat this scourge, we, we're seeing something different. We are seeing um, an increased level of violence, 
of uh, threats to our community, uh, just as you had just played on that clip, um, based on um, really it came from anti-Israel rallies that were taking place, many of which were in contravention of local health guidelines, COVID-19 restrictions, um, and we saw flags um, with uh, swastikas on them, praise of Adolf Hitler, um, and, um, and genocidal uh, <laughs> calls for uh, not only the destruction of Israel, but targeting individual Jews. And that's where it's showing these sorts of threats have been crossing the line from anti-Israel rhetoric into attacks on individual Jews. And um, this is something that our community is very concerned about this elevated level because they feel threatened in a way that they haven't felt before in Canada. And that's dangerous. And we need to do something about it because if it gets too bad, you can never put a genie back into the bottle again. Uh, Michael Levitt, what's what's your take on it? Uh, does it come from uh, seeing these things happen in the United States? I mean, you know, it's it is a, a long distance from from graffiti and vandalism to this. Thank you, Libby. Listen, I want to begin by acknowledging the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd and recognize the importance of the work that is ongoing to address the systemic racism being faced by the black community in Canada. Uh, we, we all stand together against racism. And uh, I, I think today is an important day to reflect on that. Uh, Michael's right. We've, we've seen uh, a virulence to the anti-Semitism that's playing out um, on the streets of Toronto uh, and across, not just Toronto, but it, as your first clip showed, cities across the country. And it's deeply, deeply concerning. I mean, Michael mentioned the rallies that I consider to have been a vector for hate, signs invoking Hitler, flags being burned, rhetoric around, um, you know, a, a death to Jews, death to Israel, um, becoming common refrain, deeply concerning. But I'll tell you what else is incredibly concerning, and that is social media. Um, social media has been a, um, has been fanning the flames, as has the lack of, um, coverage, uh, that has been balanced and accurate on mainstream media. And this is, again, a source of deep concern. We're seeing conspiracy theories that had been existing even before, um, the, uh, uh the, uh, conflict, uh, between Israel and the terrorist group Hamas. We have been seeing that playing out um, since the early days of COVID. We know that in um, times of crisis, the, the Jews historically have been the first ones that have come under attack. And we've seen conspiracy theories about um, the, the, uh, about Pfizer and the, the, the CEO there. We've seen it about um, Jews experimenting on Palestinian children with vaccines. Uh, and this has just continued to get worse and worse and worse. And it fuels the anti-Semitism on the streets. And I think as a Canadian Jew, I look around and I really, um, I, I have tremendous concern. Um, and I'm also deeply saddened by the relative silence that has existed in terms of calling it out. This is a time when the Jewish community in Canada needs our allies to speak loud and clear, condemning anti-Semitism in all its forms. And uh, I, I think it's been muted. And I think uh, we need to hear more and more and more of our leaders speaking unequivocally on this point. Uh, Simon Granite, I mean, I have heard every everybody from Justin Trudeau to John Tory to Doug Ford uh, condemning this. Uh, what And in the States, Joe Biden, I thought being very clear, you know, what more should they be doing? Well, first off, uh, thanks for having me uh, on today. And uh, and a lot of my colleagues' points are are excellent. Uh, what we're witnessing is is a spike. It's a surge uh, in anti-Semitism in Canada. Uh, that's deeply concerning. It's it's in neighborhoods. It's at rallies uh, in Montreal. Uh, Pro-Israel uh, demonstrators who were peaceful were pelted with rocks. For example, um, we're seeing it online. We're seeing it in person. And as we've mentioned earlier, what we're seeing is a is a rise that's not just a Canadian rise in anti-Semitism. It's a rise that's happening uh, in the United States, uh, in in Europe, and and it's concerning. If I can be real for a minute, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply concerned 
um, in this scary time. And I think what's really important for for listeners uh, to understand is is that um, this is certainly uh, targeting the Jewish community, but it's a problem that affects all uh, Canadians. It's uh, hate has no place in Canada, uh, and so. We have seen, uh, as you mentioned, leaders like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, the leader of the official opposition, uh, Premiers Ford and Kenny, uh, Mayors Tory and Iveson and, and Plant, uh, speak against this. But, but really, uh, anti-Semitism, what starts with the Jews, doesn't end with the Jews. And it's, it's important for all Canadians of goodwill to come together um, to combat this, uh, this age-old hatred of which we're seeing, seeing a spike in right now. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've noticed, it's, it's, it's not just Jews. One of the things that was deeply disturbing happening in the wake of COVID-19 were attacks on, on people of, of Asian descent and Asian, anti-Asian hate. I, I mean, I, I'm wondering if there isn't something with all of this where people who are basically bigots are just emboldened there's there's no doubt that we're seeing a rise in hate i think if you look at michael cited the bene brith statistics the toronto police uh, service also had statistics that were out um for last year covering part of the pandemic year um and and that is generally uh, true across we're seeing it targeting again the black community lgbtq uh, the Asian community, the Muslim community, and of course, anti-Semitism. But I think we're talking about something different here, Libby, and I think it's important um, to really focus in on it. We are seeing in Canada, in the U.S., in the U.K., around the world, a sharp rise in the last couple of weeks in anti-Semitism. This isn't just the steady trend lines that we've seen over the last number of years playing out. This is sharp increases where Jews in Toronto are having um, fake eviction notices placed on their door because they have a mezuzah. It's where you're seeing Jews in the city of Toronto um, unwilling or concerned about wearing their Star of David or their kippah. It's where you're seeing, again, carfuls of um, people uh, with Palestinian flags going up Bathurst Street into communities, standing on street corners with the intent of intimidation. This is not business as usual. The, the, the business of usual of the, you know, the hate and racism that we see playing out against all groups in society is absolutely bad enough. But we've got to recognize that this is even worse. This is an extremely dire situation that is calling into question the safety of Jews in Canada. People are feeling worried. They're feeling that they can't outwardly show who they are. Businesses getting phone calls asking if they're owned by Israelis. Are they an Israeli business? Um, you know, this is, this is not the city or the country I recognize, and it is not business as usual. Just a second. I'm going to take a call. We have to take a break and we will be we, we will get to all of you. But uh, Rosie in Toronto, um, what's on your mind? Rosie? Oh, hi. Sorry. Um, I was very, um, very disgusted um, by one of the responses by the president and vice president of the U.S., um, they responded with tweets, and um, I know social media is an acceptable form of communication today. However, uh, when it comes to something as serious as um, the anti-Semitism that we're seeing today, I, I believe that a stronger response um, was really in order, and I, I found that to be very, very disappointing. I also would like to know, in terms of here at home, um, our own prime minister, um, and Premier of Ontario and Mayor on all levels of government, what are they doing proactively and reactively to protect the Jewish community of Toronto? Uh, you know, it's not enough just to talk. We, we need more than just strong words. We need strong 
actions, and we need to know that there's a form of protection for the Jewish community that's filtering down from the prime minister to the to the provincial leaders to to the mayors of the cities. I, I Rosie, um, thanks for your call. I, I generally speaking, uh, whatever extra security arrangements there are, is not something that talked about in public. I'm- thanks a lot for your call. Uh, we've got to take a break. We will be back with more on this alarming spike in anti-Semitic incidents and anti-Semitism. We're talking to Michael Levitt, Michael Mostyn, and Simon Granite, and we'll be right back with more. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And on the one-year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd, we'll look at what the impact that event has had here in Canada. Also, we've reached a milestone in the vaccination campaign with more than half of eligible Canadians having their first jab. Does that mean all is forgiven? after the flagrant incompetence that marked our initial procurement and rollout. Recent polling shows people are happier with the federal government's handling of the crisis as opposed to the Ontario government. And where does Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole stand with everyone predicting an election sooner rather than later? We are, though, still way behind in full vaccination, and that will hamper any reopening. And speaking of COVID, there is some new evidence that there may be some credence to the theory that the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan. It's a possibility many of us dismissed as a conspiracy theory. So what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740-4740. And now let's bring in Karen Stintz, the CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Member of Provincial Parliament for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hey, good afternoon. Let us start with Karen, so th- this was a bit of a surprise to me, seeing that there actually might be something to this theory that the virus leaked out of a, a lab in Wuhan. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I think it, it isn't it's not beyond the credulity that a viro- virology lab could have had an incident whereby one of the viruses escaped and. You know, human the researchers not knowing transmitted it into the community. I think that's probably something that could reasonably happen. I, you know, I, I think where things get a little more contentious is the idea that China deliberately did this. And you know, I think the notion that it was deliberate is probably not the case. But is it? Could I believe that this happened? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've the experts who were sort of said they have some evidence. This uh, don't seem to think that it was deliberate, uh, John. Uh, and what is the importance, if any, of this? Well, I think it just goes to show you sometimes, Libby, that conspiracy theories sometimes aren't just theories, <laughs> and that there are <laughs> there are chan- there are chances that some of these things could be true. Um, you know, it, it's funny because if you watch the debate in the U.S. during the whole. Uh, latter part of President Trump's term, when he was actually accusing China of doing this on purpose and called it the China virus and all of the stuff that he and, and some of the Republicans were were saying at the time, you know, there was a lot of people that were dismissing it as just as, as, as fluff and whatever. I, I don't know how much he would know or how much they knew at the time, but there was always some sense that something was happening, that there might not have been this natural bat virus that caused it, that it was actually manufactured uh, in some way, shape, or form, maybe not for the, this kind of harm, but there's always things, there's always viruses and things that are being tested in labs uh, in order to, to be created, in order for, for people to be able to find the antivirus and, 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 and sort of the vaccines for those kinds of things that come out. So I wonder, you know, I wonder how this was going on. And, and again, you're seeing some of the some of the debate in the U.S. regarding, you know, did 
the uh, CDC know about this? Did they fund these types of laboratories? And, and I think those get into the realm of conspiracy theories. But but I think it's not a far stretch to think that this might have been manufactured. Uh, and, you know, and I think if that's the case, I think questions are going to be asked, are going to continue to be asked, not only in the U.S., um, but around the world as far as what happened and what's going on. And I think that day, we talked about that day of reckoning where people are going to start thinking, okay, well, now the pandemic's over. We can start asking questions about how this happened, why this happened, and how, how various you know, government jurisdictions handled the crisis. I think are all things that are going to be coming up over the next number of months as we tend to get out of this uh, pandemic. Well, the... So the evidence for this that's being cited anyway is that there were some people who worked in the lab who were ill with similar symptoms as early as November 2019. Now, to me, Charles, uh, if this is true, but even if it's not true, one of the things that has bothered me since the beginning is the feeling that, you know, China, of course, has been denying this, that the World Health Organization really panders to China. And by extension, here in Canada, we give it a pass. I mean, I can't help but remember uh, Patty Haidu talking, you know, accusing people of racism because, uh, you know, they talked about uh, some of the things that China was doing. You know, it's, it's- natural to speculate that three lab, three lab technicians got sick and and they are now identifying that as possibly being the origins of COVID. So there's no evidence who has already informed that there's no evidence that it's being an engineered virus. That's an important thing to note, as both commentators have noted. Question is, um, did it was a source from the lab or was a source uh, from the bat that went that was far off somewhere that ended up at the lab. That could have been the case. So they're trying to do early detection. But it does beg an investigation and to determine where the actual origins took. Well, did the lab leak? Could have been. Was it purposeful? Like, did they mean to do something? I don't think so. And no, there's no evidence that it was the case. Certainly, China has denied that it was a manufactured virus, but they have not denied access. They are allowing the investigation to proceed. They, too, want to find the source of where the origins of the COVID-19 occurred. So I think that's positive. And um, as long as they're able to investigate, as long as they're able to go in there to determine where the early detection occurred, I think that's a positive thing to do. Um, I don't buy into the fact that it was manufactured. I do now doubt that it could have been a leak, but They'll have to investigate to determine if that was. Well, they they allow access, but with severe limitations. And like I said, you know, when I have seen uh, those delegations, I mean, they are, you know, they're almost China apologists. And I'm not saying that I think that it was deliberate. I I don't. I don't know what exactly happened they they haven't figured out the exact source of it at the beginning we heard a lot about bats but but apparently that has not been figured out entirely karen yeah i agree with you and i and i do remember i can't remember when it was but the world health organization came out with a really strong statement saying that there's no way it could have come from the lab and even then i thought well how can you say that with such certainty because it's a lab that studies viruses Come on, really? Like it's not, but the, but the Chinese government don't don't help themselves because they're not an open society. They're not going to let an organization like, um, you know, an, an independent investigation occur because they're they're very secretive. And if it turns out to be human error that causes global pandemic, that's not something China is going to want to wear. But at this point, I don't think there's any investigation that can be done that will confirm either way because the Chinese aren't going to accept the results to point the finger at human error. I, I, and I don't think anybody believes it was intentional, but certainly something we do need to, 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 to better understand how this occurred and for the pure purpose of it not happening again. And then also if that lab was working on an antidote or a vaccine, then what, you know, I mean, that's a bit of a stretch as well, but, you know, where, where was China there in that response? And so there are certainly a lot of questions that, that the globe needs answers for. And we're not through this pandemic yet. And so I still think there are things that China can do. And first and foremost, it's a better understanding of, of how this happened. 
Yeah. Um, you know, turning to where we're at in all of this, John, so we're, we're hitting milestones in first shots. And Trudeau's been talking about a one-dose summer. Uh, I mean, one dose is, is really means that we can't quite reopen. Uh, what do you think this means for their fortunes? And also the fact that, uh, you know, the, the conservative leader doesn't seem to be he doesn't seem to be resonating. Well, let me, uh, just before I answer that, Libby, let me also address the issue of, of the China, because I, I do agree with, with Karen with respect to the, they're such a closed society, they're a communist-run government. I think it's just been the fact that China, over course of history, has never been transparent and accountable when it comes to these kind of things. And there's, there's history in the past that has shown uh, that they've either uh, they've either spread misinformation, or they just haven't come up with the truth, or they just haven't. And I think that's been the challenge. So it's hard to trust the government, the, the communist government now, based on their past practices. But that said, you know, I think you know we we talked about the pandemic coming to a to an end, hopefully soon, and and that gets into the issue of of the vaccines and and the fact that they're getting disseminated. I think there's 65 percent have been vaccinated at least with the first dose, and close to 30% or, or at least close to that on the second dose. I'll, I, I'm just extremely happy that I think everybody now is getting vaccinated. I'm, I'm hearing friends of, uh, you know, as I'm sure we all are, but, you know, family friends who's their 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds or 15-year-olds are getting vaccinated. So I think, you know, from that perspective, that's that's great news. And, and you know, as I mentioned, my, my daughter is 19 and she got her vaccine two weeks ago. So that's an extremely positive sign. So I do think that people are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable or less anxious, I should say, with respect to the vaccine, because it seems that people are getting it more and more without less, without the stories of, of the troubles or the tribulations that they've been facing getting them. Now they're just talking about, hey, I got it, and, and they're showing off that the fact that they got it, which is great. So that's good news. I do think, though, that that's going to mean good news for, for the governments, both the liberals at the federal level, and I also think at the provincial level as well. I think people will, you know, there was a lot of relief and, and, and excitement, me included, that golf was opened uh, this past mm-hmm. weekend and uh, it will be over over the course of the last little while. I think that was a smart move by, by the premier. I do think that as, as people get vaccinated, as, as the openings start happening now with a little bit more of, of you know, a plan to them, I think people will, will, will judge this premier, I think, positively over the course of the next little while because they'll say, yeah, he made some tough decisions. He made some errors. He admitted to them. But at least now we're getting to a point where we're not, we're, no, we're not behind other provinces. In fact, we're actually ahead of other provinces and other jurisdictions, which I think at the end of the day will dictate how this premier handled the pandemic. Yeah, but on the other hand... Uh we there there was another survey which you know asked the question which provinces have been hardest hit and we're uh we're right up there so uh charles i mean uh, is the government going to emerge with this i mean doug ford's popularity peaked right at the very beginning in the first wave and is taking a hit though they're they're still in the lead and again you know we've all said that in the middle of a crisis like this it is hard to be in opposition it's hard being in government, too. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> politics is unforgiving in this circumstance. I think your initial question around Trudeau and and uh, the opposition, will, will this lead to a federal election? I hope not. I don't think anybody has it in them right now to go through one of those at this point until such time as herd immunity kicks in. And if Trudeau uses those catchy phrases to encourage people to get their vaccines, all the better. I mean, I don't understand what it means. All I know is he's talking about getting people vaccinated and encouraging the demand to occur and all the anti-vaxxers to come on board. I think that's great. Uh, I don't think we should talk about one-dose summer. I think we should talk about getting two doses by the end of summer. Let's get it done. In regards to Ford, boy, we're fickle, right? I mean, he's at top of the polls one minute, and then a few another couple of decisions are made, and he's down in the trenches, and he's in the, you know, he's in the mud. The problem with politics and certain individuals is that they fight in the mud. And and uh, the premier has had a tendency in the past to also be a bully and also throw out remarks. Uh, and then when it comes back at him, the skin is not so hard, right? you you're, you got to be a bit tough. I think he's improving, and I think over time his fortunes will come back. Um, I'm hoping not, of course, because I'm a liberal and I want to see I want to see a little bit more progressive nature in our poli- in our government. But um, this is politics; and it, it goes up and down. So, as a liberal, of, let just to edit the last part of Charles' uh, <laughs> answer. Uh, as a liberal, Charles, then how would you say Stephen Del Duca is doing? Um, so, 
there is an image issue. I mean, I, I know him well. He's articulate. He's informed. He's an intelligent person, and uh, his heart is in the right place. Um, but it will really resonate through his, his the way he expresses himself in a very monotone way, and, and he, you know, people may not be as receptive, but he acknowledges that. I mean, Stephen Del Duca acknowledges that he's not as charismatic and as folksy as Doug Ford. Um, but politics, in most cases, as it was in the last election, you dump them, right? You vote people out as opposed to voting them in. That may be an advantage to uh, Del Duca. Right. And um, Karen, Andrea Horvath, uh, has she been striking the right note through this? Uh, so, I mean, personally speaking, um, no. And, and I only say that because, you know, again, we, there's a lot of standing up and finger-pointing there's not a lot of idea generation. And I understand that the purpose of the opposition is to hold the government to account. But, you know, when we're in the situation that we're in, uh, it, it's just sometimes unhelpful. And I, and I would say the current government, too, both the governments at both levels, but I think more so provincially, have for some time suffered from a communication problem in that uh, delivering a clear message has been a challenge. And I understand that it's an evolving virus and things change. But, you know, even um, now, the new message is we can reopen when 75% of the population gets the vaccine. That's a new message. That was never the message that we had before. 75% first dose, 20% fully vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, 75% first dose, 20% um, second dose. But, But that's a new message even. And so, you know, I'm scratching my head thinking, okay, well, what does that mean for me and my facility? And so, you know, where, again, Andrea could have been more helpful in terms of getting clarity is some of the mixed messaging, um, as opposed to, you know, beating the drum about, you know, inquiries here and looking at that, things that we already know. And so I think that there's opportunities for both the Liberal and the NDP party to, to, to hold the government to account in a way that's actually more productive than they have been. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I found that at the beginning, uh, Del Duca, anyway, tried not to always just be complaining, but he seems to have switched uh, into that. <laughs> I guess uh, it's just easier. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I'm not sure it's, it's, it's helping him. It, 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 it doesn't work. You know, John Tory, if you recall, when he was leader of the Conservative Party of Ontario, um, you know, and this is, and for those who do know John Tory, John Tory is an extremely effective politician, and but he's not highly partisan, uh, which is why he's making so, he's, he's such a good mayor. Because as leader of the Conservative Party, he would often say, "Look, I'm not going to disagree for the sake of disagreeing. I'm going to agree where there's you know policies that were good and and policies that are not." But when you are a leader of a partisan party, uh, and, you know, especially in opposition, and you're giving praise to the government. Um, you know, that only works for, for so long. And then people are like, well, really, what, 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 what's the difference between him and, and this person? You've got to have the contrast. And some people will say, well, some opposition leaders go too far and they criticize all the time, such as Andrew Horvath and, and even in the case of Aaron O'Toole. But it, it, it also does a lot to solidify their base. It gets their base energized. It gets people who are hardcore NDPers or liberals or conservatives within the party saying, yes, I want to see my leader attack the opposition in some way, shape, or form. There's a fine balance, Libby, with respect to, and both Karen and and Charles will know this because they're both have been successful politicians. They will know that there's a fine balance between that. But if you if you praise the government so much, too much, you get lost in the. There's no news there, uh, and if you don't praise, if you don't praise them enough, then you get you get seen as an attack dog. And I think with Andrea Horvath. I think her issue is that she just attacks on on this on every little thing. There's not even one remote thing where even the experts were saying that the premier was doing something good. She would say, "Nope, it's false." There's not enough time. Mike Schreiner is an effective opposition leader for the Green Party. He doesn't get a lot of press, but if you ever hear him or see him talk on, on I agree. panels. He is an effective opposition leader because he will give a praise where it's needed, but will attack quite viciously when he needs to. Uh, he picks his spots, uh, which is, I guess, uh, something that all kinds of people should do. Charles, uh, it's the one-year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd, an event that had many, many reverberations here. What sticks after a year? Yeah, you know... Um, in Ontario, we actually commissioned a report on carding, on police relations by Judge Michael Tullock, and he finally released his report in 2018, 
talking about much of the cultural changes necessary in the police force, uh, trying to find ways to limit their powers or prevent arbitrary or random stops that infringe upon people's rights or people's concerns. I mean, George Floyd obviously was a much greater issue, and the impact in Canada as well as the United States is tremendous. I mean, there is going to be a cultural change in the force. There are going to be more body cameras. There's going to be calls to change a criminal justice system, to provide some more accountability on behalf of the police. And, and, if I, and I had not been affected by carding, but I did have an instance where a security guard, when I was a co-chair for John Tory, way back in his first run at the mayorship where he lost, and I went up to the podium, I was up to the thing, and this security guard saw me, didn't know who I was, and sort of grabbed me and kind of shoved me, gave me a, you know, moved me off the 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 runway of sort of speaking, like, who are you, why are you here? And I was annoyed, I was infuriated by it. And that was nothing in comparison to what many people have been experiencing over time uh, with police checks, with the stops, with uh, being, a, you know, uh, restrained. Um, and, and, and now with the cell phones that are revealing much of what has occurred over the last number of years, that's really put our, our sights at what is taking place. And, you know, authoritarian, um, you know, guys that are, you know, feeling themselves all powerful and um, racism is underlying that, too. So I, I, I'm certainly sorry, of course, of what has taken place. And George Floyd's, uh, I mean, they're, I guess they're going to release a judgment next month. Um, I believe the majority of Canadians and people in the U.S. welcome uh, the opportunity to find justice here. Uh, but we have a long ways to go. Yeah, and Karen, it's interesting that just a few weeks ago, when the government made that terrible mistake and they were talking about uh, much more enforcement of COVID rules, that's the first thing people thought of was uh, shades of carding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I think that um, had the trial gone a different way, I think that the mood would be very different than it is now. I think there is a sense that um, perhaps reforms that need to be in place aren't moving fast enough. And you know, certainly when we think about what's happening in the military, there had been a call for a citizen review body to look at sexual assault charges in the military, and that was slow to get off the ground, still not being done. And so we see it. We see that these large institutions that are, quote-unquote, law and order or um, rank and file and um, have a certain way of operating, they're very, those cultures are very, very hard to change. And it, you can't, you know, and then, and then I think there was also the mistake of defunding the police, which nobody... However you feel about the police, I don't. I think there's very few people that would want it defunded because ultimately we do rely on the police for our our protection. And so, you know, I think that there is incremental change. I think that we're seeing it in different places and at different phases. But I think, you know, had that trial gone a different way, um, maybe we'd be in a different place too. Maybe if I could add, in your notion in regards to Ford, that's a really important. Uh, comment you made. I mean, when we were looking at carding and trying to bring some restraint to police, we had a lot of pushback because they were looking at gangs and they were looking at preventing criminal activity and preventing crimes. That's why they said they needed to continue to card. And yet that changed over time, especially after we had our consultations with Mike Tolick and others, to when Ford actually gave them the right to provide arbitrary stops to citizens and the police forces across the province said, no, we're not doing that, because they had just come out of a number of uh, debates on the issue. And I was encouraged by the fact that the police took the leadership on this, as opposed to the government, recognizing that it was wrong and it was against people's privacy. And a can of worms. Yeah, and a can of worms. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, is is this just a, a matter of policing? I mean, one of the things that, you know, I think they've started to deal with, you know, that came out of all of this, at least the the incidents here in Canada, was that maybe police are not the best people to deal with, you know, mental health crises. Yeah. I think so. But again, it's, that's, a, that's a, to be candid, I mean, that's a tricky one, right? Because if there is a call um, in the midnight hours or in the late night hours, and there is an episode of someone who is having um, some mental health issues and it's presenting in a way that's causing danger to themselves or the public, you're still going to call the police. Or and, 
because you're not going to call a social worker at, at 1230 at night to come out and de-escalate a situation that has potentially um, complicated outcomes. And so, you know, it is it is easy to say that, yes, the police should have more support or maybe they shouldn't be involved in, the, in those, types, those types of calls. But it's, it's practically difficult to not have them be. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, what are the big things that we should be looking for in the coming week, John? Well, I would, uh, I would say, and just to add my comments on, on the George Floyd anniversary uh, death, I think that his, his killing uh, and, and, and has been is transformative, and I think it's going to continue to be transformative in how people and organizations and, and um, police forces are dealt with over the course of the next you know, number of years, if not beyond that. But I would say from, from over the next little while, uh, a little closer to home with respect to the vaccines. I think if we can sort of get into the threshold, I think people are, ho- are hoping for phase one or stage one to be opened up in mid-June uh, and that we can keep to the to the plan that, that the province has laid out with respect to vaccines, first doses and second doses. I think people are getting really excited at the prospect that there might be some level of new normal or some openings uh, by the end of summer, at least, if nothing else. But certainly if we can keep on the track that we're on now, Libby, I see that we're going to have a lot more restrictions um, eased over the course of the next month or two months. Charles? More protests, by all accounts. I mean, we've had a lot in the last little while. Protests, you know, for issues, you know, that are occurring in the Middle East, issues that are occurring with anti-masks and anti-vaskers, uh, protests around Black Lives Matter and the issue with regards to uh, George Floyd and things of, uh, and other matters of racism. All these things are problematic in a pandemic. Um, but I think, I think as the summer comes to, to be and warm weather's there, hopefully people will start to calm down a bit and realize we're so fortunate to live in Canada. <laughs> that, that would be a good message, Karen. Yeah, I, I actually think that there, there needs to be a little bit of unpacking of this uh, goal of 75% of adults need to be vaccinated or the popu- eligible population needs to be vaccinated before we can start opening up because that is new. And that's, actually at a higher rate than even uh, jurisdictions in the U.S. that have reopened. And it's not consistent with what Quebec is doing. And if I understand the message that you need to get, you know, the message of the government is if you want to get back to normal, you need to get vaccinated. And, you know, by and large, I buy into that message. But if enough people don't buy into that message, then that really impairs our ability to even begin reopening on a smaller scale. And so I think it's putting that marker out there with a actually could potentially be a bit of a landmine for the government because if we don't get to 75 for first shot by the middle of June, what are we, what are we going to do if the numbers are down? If the caseloads are, are quite low and yet we're still not able to open because we haven't reached that threshold, I, I think that's a potential concern for the government. Okay, well, uh, we will definitely follow up on that one next week. Thank you so much, Karen Stintz, John Bianco, and Charles Souza. Thanks, Libby. All the best. Okay, talk soon. And uh, speaking of demonstrations and acts of racism, after the break, we're going to be talking about a huge spike in anti-Semitic incidents, many of them violent in the wake of the fighting between Israel and Hamas. Uh, We'll be talking about that. It is a very concerning development. Before we go to break, let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be back with that after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.